Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We are also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Mike, our first Grand Slam of the tennis season in the books. Time to recover our sleep schedule and also talk about a brand new champion on the women's side and a very familiar champion on the men's side. Yeah, what a very exciting two weeks of tennis and what a contrast between seeing someone win their first ever Grand Slam, which is always super exciting. I mean, I don't think you can help but be pretty pumped up for someone to hoist their first major trophy, a career-defining moment, perhaps the first of many for Sabalenka. And then, like I said, to contrast that on the men's side, my goodness, a 10th Aussie Open title for Novak Djokovic, a 22nd major overall. Um, What a difference between the men's and women's draw. And I think that's what makes having... The two genders competing at the same time in a big tournament like this, just so special uh, because you can get uh, wonderful differences between both sides like we just saw. Yeah, uh, certainly. And if we begin on the women's side, Arena Sabalenka, as you mentioned, getting that first career major, I have to say, not that I saw every single match played through the tournament on the women's side, to get such an incredibly high-level final between Sabalenka and Rybakina, 4-6-6-3-6-4. For me, this may have been the the match of the tournament and sort of the pinnacle of the tournament on the women's side. Just a, a spectacular final between the two players, like pure power tennis going toe-for-toe, punch-for-punch, right until right until the finish line. It was really good, and, and it got better as it went along. After the first set, when Rabakina won, I thought, ah, oh, she's got that Wimbledon slam, which was just, you know, not even a year ago. Sabalenka, is she going to be able to sink her teeth in this match now, or are the doubts going to creep into her mind? Uh, is she going to be able to get back to the tennis we'd seen through her first six matches? And and fortunately, she was. In the second set, the confidence was growing. And in the third, I mean, they were on set, uh, on serve uh, together there, 3-3, going toe-for-toe. The forehands, the serving, it didn't seem like either one was going to capitulate. And yeah, what we got is exactly what you said, which was a quality final. Uh, what, what you want to see, and that's that's so often not the case, especially in a Grand Slam where, where nerves are going to creep in, especially for a first-timer uh, like Sabalenka, who had never been to a Slam final before. So I think fans who were there got their, their money's worth. I think we got a, a match that we can really sink our, our teeth into and, and dissect. And I think, as Sabalenka said at the end of the match, uh, maybe the two of them will have many more like this. You could certainly see it, given uh, Sabalenka now up to number two in the world. And Rabakina, um, her ranking coming in, I don't think anyone put any stock into that because Wimbledon uh, never awarded her any points for for her big victory. So those are two top 10 players in my mind that uh, should both take confidence from uh, from this tournament. Yeah, and uh, great for Rabakina now to to make her debut in the top 10, in fact, uh, with this result uh, rising to number 10 in the world. Arena Sabalenka back to her career high of number two, which also feels incredibly fitting. If you look at all the names actually below the list right now in the top 10, it's just Iga Shmiatek, who, of, of course, is our world number one, and Arena Sabalenka, number two, are the only two within the top 10 who have actually won Grand Slam. So uh, the rankings feel quite fitting right now within the top 10 other than Rebakina sorry of course winning Wimbledon not getting awarded the points uh, but just going into a few of the numbers as well Sabalenka had a positive um, a plus stat on winners to errors through six of her seven matches in this tournament from the second round on which is incredibly hard to do and 51 winners in that final match which is an astounding number 17 aces and I know we touched on would the double faults, would the yips maybe factor in? And that 
second serve issue that she had last year rear its ugly head. She had a couple problems with it in the first set, but really was able to settle down and and take care of business and not really have that issue throughout the rest of the match. I, I thought she handled that remarkably well. And I mean, the first serve of the match was a double fault for her and she kind of smirked and it was like almost a little laugh and like, oh, okay, no biggie, get it out of the way. Yeah. Second point was an ace, and and you know, yeah, there were some moments even closing out the match. It was a little bit tense for her in mm-hmm. that final game of the third set, uh, serving at five four. But I was so impressed by how she managed to rein it in, regather her composure, and serve it out. And for Sabalenka, who's been talked about, including between us on this podcast, maybe the most talented player to not have a slam on the women's side, she now sheds that label and I think can probably just play so much more free moving forward, not having that hanging over her head anymore. Yeah, and and look, she has, uh, for me, a pretty complete career to this point. With that major, she has titles now at every level of the WTA, the 250, the 500, the 1000s, and now a Grand Slam. 12 titles in all for me. Uh, Yeah, she had probably been maybe outside of Karolina Pliskova, the best player on tour uh, career-wise to not win a slam and now sheds that and has her first career major. Rybakina, I mean, she's made two of the last three slam finals. What needs to change, I think, is can we get her some superstardom attached to these results and maybe see her a little more often on, on some of the center courts, you know? Maybe we need her on uh, season two of Breakpoint on, on Netflix. Sure. Uh, I'm not sure if they're doing a season two of Breakpoint or if they want to see how the first few episodes sort of played out. I believe out, they are. But, I believe well, they are. Uh, fantastic. Fantastic. And uh, you know, hopefully we can continue to have a Canadian presence in there too. But uh, Rebecca, to me, just a, a fantastic game to watch. And uh, and she's only 23 years old. Sabalenka, only 24 years old. Feels like mm-hmm. she's been around a little bit longer. And and Sabalenka is someone whose who's personality, just go back to her for a moment, but just someone who really seems to love the sport and somebody who I've always enjoyed watching uh, in practice, uh, even just last summer here in Toronto at the National Bank Open. Aside from getting up close on those practice courts to see both her forehand and backhand up close, obviously the serve, it, it's how much she enjoys practicing. It's, uh, you know, the back and forth kind of joking with her coach. The smiles, the enjoyment, the laughter. She really strikes me as someone who enjoys being a professional tennis player. And so I was uh, certainly happy to see her have that that breakthrough moment, knowing how much she she enjoys her craft. Yeah, you know, she's such a ferocious competitor and so passionate on the court, but she has this goofy sort of lovable side to her personality as well. And she does love to joke around, which is uh, terrific. Um, just checking in, I guess, on the rest of the women's side and and what transpired. I mean, the big shock, I suppose, of the tournament, Iga Spiontek losing that round of 16 match to Rybakina, 6-4-6-4. What do you make of her tournament? Is this a setback at all? Should Iga fans be nervous moving forward for 2023? Well, I think it's great for all the other women on the WTA and the other 127 who are competing in the Aussie, I mean, it's, look, it's called the happy slam, but really only one person ends up happy at the end. So it's not like yeah. he is the only player that didn't win or didn't make it as far as she would have liked to. She got two slams last year coming to the French Open. She's going to be the favorite there, given her prowess on clay as well. And uh, I I just like the storyline of having someone else hoist a, a trof- trophy. Um, uh, although we all love it when, when a player goes on a, a good run and consolidates too. So look, either way, I'm, I'm happy with, uh, with whatever happens with Iga next, but it's not like she's going to disappear. It's not like suddenly she's going to no. become some, you know, she's been a consistent presence in the top 10 for a while now. 
And I think still when people go up against her, uh, you know, they're not going to enjoy what they're seeing on the other side of the net. And even before her loss to her back, and I mean, she was smoking it. She won, what, six love, six one in the match prior to that. So yep. she came up against a hot opponent. I mean, Rabakina, just to touch on her one last time, defeated Iga, defeated Ostapenko, Azarenka, other prior slam champs, defeated Danielle Collins, who's a beast in Melbourne. Um, so Rabakina, you know, if she hadn't taken Iga out, maybe we'd be talking about a different champion right now. Who knows? Yeah, and, and look, I think we should also recognize for 2023, Iga's going to have a big-time target on her back. Uh, when you have the season that you have in 2022 with the two slams, the eight titles, that 37-match winning streak, I think the rest of the tour is almost working to problem-solve how to beat her. And we saw Pagula finally figured it out at the United Cup leading into the Australian Open, defeated her on a fast, hard-court surface. They know, the rest of the tour knows they have to elevate their games to to keep up with her because Iga's played such phenomenal tennis over the past year-plus, over the past couple of years, really. So uh, she will have a target on her back. I think she'll respond. will be interesting to see how she plays in, in Doha and Dubai, which is where her winning streak kind of took off last season. I uh, I wanted to ask you now that Sabalenka has her first major title, who is now the next best player on the women's side, uh, whether it be talented or, or or full of promise or one you would expect to have a slam title? Who who doesn't yet? That's a very good question because I think you can go a, a couple different directions with this. I mean, if we're talking about raw talent. Maybe I look at Coco Goff, who's still not even 19 years old, and she's already been to that major final, and you think she's only going to keep improving and improving. I know some people have concerns about her forehand, which sometimes sometimes can look a little vulnerable under pressure. The other side of that is, are you looking at maybe like a Belinda Bencic or a Jessica Pagula, players who are you know more to mid-late 20s who have been around and have been building and, and winning winning titles and posting great results on Jabir as well? Are those the ones more likely to seize their next slam? I don't, I don't honestly know. <laughs> I, I mean, I would put one of the ones you just mentioned. I would put Belinda Bencic up there. And when we saw her in 2015 in Toronto, I can't believe it was that long ago already. Yeah defeat Serena Williams all the way en route to the title, the the very improbable title, uh, which was against Simona Halep, who had to retire in that final match, unfortunately. But she was incredible. She was lights out. Serena Williams at the time said, hey, this is the next big thing in women's tennis. And mm -hmm. while that hasn't necessarily panned out to that level, she's been pretty darn good. Uh, Olympic gold medalist, Olympic silver medalist in, in uh, doubles as well. So far at the slams, it hasn't quite translated, hasn't made a final. She's got a semifinal at the U.S. Open in 19, a couple other quarterfinal uh, appearances there, but hasn't had um, that, that final run yet. But I think we can all agree she's got the game, and she knows how to win big matches, as evidenced in the last Olympic game. So I would put Bencic there, and, and I know a player we've mentioned in the past is Karolina Pliskova, but I feel like that train has sort of left the station at, the, at this point, perhaps. Yeah, look, she. it felt like if you looked at her draw after getting through the first week, maybe there was an opportunity there because she was in the quarterfinals, but uh, lost to Magda Lynette, who was definitely probably the biggest surprise of this tournament to be making her first career semifinal. So I'm not sure that it's going to happen for Pliskova. She still has the two major finals, um, but we haven't really seen sort of that former number one level from her in, in quite some time. There's still other names to watch. You could presumably do it as well. I mean, Caroline Garcia, top five player. She was in the semifinals of the U.S. Open last year and has been playing great as well. So I think there's so many good storylines to follow 
as the season continues. I mean, we're one slam down, but we're only one month into the tennis calendar. Yeah, already so much great tennis. And we should mention um, in the doubles, women's doubles, mm-hmm. uh, Barbara Krejcikova and Katarina Siniakova continue their impressive Grand Slam dominance with their 24th straight win at a major. Now, they missed one last year because Krejcikova, I think, had COVID and couldn't compete. But otherwise, last year was, uh, what, Aussie Open, Wimbledon, U.S. Open. Now the Aussie Open again. Uh, I believe their seventh title as a team. So super impressive stuff from that uh, all-Czech duo. Unbelievable. I mean, they dropped one set in their first round match. After that, uh, they didn't have a set that was closer than six to four. So like an absolute powerhouse doubles team. And I still have faith that Krejcikova can get back near the top of the women's game in singles as well. She's she's that talented. Uh, moving on, I, I mean, we touched on what Bianca Andreescu did and didn't do. Same with Layla Fernandez the last episode. Gabby Dabrowski, I think we wanted a bit more from her in doubles this year. Didn't quite work out. Yeah, we're so used to um, to seeing uh, Gabby Dabrowski uh, make it to the second week of a major, whether it be a mixed doubles or women's doubles, and it, it didn't happen this year, which you know, kind of surprisingly, to be perfectly honest, didn't work with Julianne almost. They fell in the third round. Didn't work in mixed either, falling in the second round. And, um, I mean, it's only one slam, and I'm sure Gabby will get back to, you know, making it deep in, in whether it's Roland Garros, Wimbledon, U.S. Open. I'm sure we're going to see a great run from her this year probably in mixed and, and women's doubles. But I, I also wonder, her and, and Julianne almost have played well together, but I don't think they've ever reached the same level of potential that her and um, Luisa Stefani had, her partner back in 2021. And unfortunately, the, the two were in the U.S. Open finals when uh, Stefani went down with that, that horrific uh, knee injury. And uh, they haven't really, they've teamed up once since then, and I believe they won a smaller level tournament together last year. But I, I just wonder if they have plans to kind of reunite, because to me, that pairing in the summer of 2021 was the best on the women's tour and I think had a lot of untapped potential still. Yeah, that was definitely a powerhouse partnership. And I should actually say Louisa Stefani uh, winning the mixed doubles uh, this past tournament in Melbourne, uh, claiming the Grand Slam with her partner, Rafael Matos, both Brazilian. So uh, if we can see Stefani and Gabby back as a partnership, I would be all here for it. If we shift over to the men's side, uh, familiar faces, I said off the top, Novak Djokovic defeating Stefano Tsitsipas 6-3-7-6-7-6 in the final to capture his 10th Australian Open, which is a record 22nd major overall, now tied with Rafael Nadal and you know when he starts adding to these records and accolades the question comes up how many slams can this guy win because he's still 35 years old and he's moving like a 25 year old on the court yeah and really the last few years what he's been able to do I mean if we think back to uh, 2018 Roger Federer's last grand slam not that I'm trying to make this about Roger but think of where Nadal and Djokovic especially were at that point in time and just what he's been able to do since then. And that's even with missing the Aussie Open last year, with missing the U.S. Open last year, with being defaulted from the U.S. Open, what, a couple of years ago? Yep. Um, so there were even more opportunities for him to add to his impressive total. And look, he's 35 years old, turning 36 in April. He does not seem anything like a 36-year-old tennis player. And when I looked at the quarterfinalists, the eight men's quarterfinalists, and took Novak's age out of the equation, the average age from the seven men's quarterfinalists this year 
was 23.2 years old. Wow. And that shocked me. I had to do that. I'm not great at math, guys, so you may want to double check this. But I triple checked those calculations, and that's what it was. And then we've got him pushing 36 here. And I don't know if last year playing a little less tennis helped him in some way. I know he came in with the hamstring injury um, or the, the 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 niggle or whatever you want to call it that was kind of bothering him. But uh, my goodness for his age, is he ever physically in, in tip-top condition? And, you know, while Federer won his last slam at 36, Agassi his last slam final at 35, uh, this guy just seems like he could go on forever, seemingly. Yeah, it's it's just incredible what he's what he's doing to this generation of young guns who who should be. You would think maybe the the fitter in that that case, if it, if it were a physical battle, you'd think that's where the edge would come in. And Stefano Tsitsipas in the final, though I suppose he had opportunities in that second set. He had one set point actually when Djokovic was serving at four five. Maybe played a little bit too passively. Got the into only that break point. That was the only break point of that second set. Yeah, which made things very dramatic. Um, and then you know was a little off with his forehand wing in particular in that tie break. Uh, I mean, he was never really in this match. And Djokovic now leading that head to head eleven to two. And you're looking at the tennis landscape right now and who is going to stop Novak. I, I think the one key name that maybe we forget about his absence here is Carlos Alcaraz. I, I think you need someone that athletic and physical with that much talent, that young and still rising uh, to really stop Novak in his tracks because it, it seems pretty clear to me the passes. I know Medvedev did beat him at the U.S. Open, but he's at the upper hand. Andre Rublev got crushed by Novak in this tournament in straight sets. Djokovic is just a class above the rest of this field. Yeah, he only dropped one set the whole tournament. I think it was in the second round. After that, it was cruise control. And he leads Tsitsipas 11-2 now, head-to-head, including, I believe, the last 10 straight. You and me witnessed the first encounter between the two of them, which was back in 2018 at the National Bank Open, where Tsitsipas stunned Djokovic and uh, eventually fell in the finals to Rafa Nadal. But that win over Djokovic was so huge for him at the time. Really a coming-out party for Tsitsipas. But he hasn't been able to really get back to that uh, sort of level against him who can very few people can and uh, who can stop Djokovic I mean I, I like your suggestion of an Alcaraz someone who's so young that they don't even maybe realize yet that they shouldn't be or aren't or shouldn't be ready yet to to take a guy like him on I mean Novak's back to number one in the world and no disrespect to Alcaraz but I think the only reason Novak probably didn't have that one already next to his name was because of the time he missed last year and fair enough to his own uh, demise was was the fact that he wasn't playing those tournaments because of his vaccination status. Um, but but here we are. He's back to being world number one, and he's tied Nadal for the overall slam count. And boy, is it ever going to be interesting? I think we mentioned this last week too. Is it ever going to be interesting at the French Open if the two of them hopefully are on opposite halves of the draw and could set up a blockbuster final where? Not that that's going to be the definitive end all who finishes, you know, overall ahead, but it would just put so much more on the line. No, my goodness. I mean, if those two are playing in the finals of the French Open this year, I think that will be, you know, arguably the biggest match of the decade uh, on the men's side in tennis. Uh, I think if I'm thinking of huge, huge matches 
I'm reminded maybe of actually 2017 when Nadal and Federer faced off again in a slam final for the first time in ages in that Australian Open, a five-set epic. I mean, Nadal and Djokovic, of course, have had their battles. They played a great match in the quarters last year at the French. Um, They played a great one in the semis the previous year. It's more on the line when it's a final, right? (laughs) Which is certainly what I would love to see. If we talk about Rafa for a moment, I mean, there are going to be a lot of question marks. He was coming into the tournament already in poor form. He dropped his first two matches at the United Cup. He was struggling at the tail end of last season, got through that first round, and then hamstring, sorry, hip injury sort of acted up while he was behind a couple sets to Mackenzie McDonald. He's apparently out six to eight weeks with that injury, and you think to yourself, how many more injuries can this guy's body sustain before he says, like, I've had enough? It's really tough to watch. You know, it really is. And the thing is, we've seen him like this before. And then he's back and he's Mm -hmm. winning slams and he's winning big titles. Look at how he started the year last year, Uh, you know, undefeated at the slams all the way until Wimbledon when he had to bow out because his body wouldn't uh, take anymore. So six to eight weeks, I mean, that's going to put him back around uh, what pretty much after Indian Wells, Miami, I guess. Yeah, so he's going to miss certainly the rest of the that the hardcore, hardcore swing. swing, right? He won't get to defend Acapulco, surely. He had signed up actually for Dubai. Sorry, I don't think he was going to play Acapulco. Had signed up for Dubai. That won't happen, and surely he's going to miss the Sunshine Double as well. So bring him back for the clay court season. Hopefully things are cooperating then, but uh, you want to see him able to compete uh, on his own terms. I, I think whether he gets his health back this year or not, it, it, it seems to me, why would you push it beyond 2023? I wonder if, you know, becoming a new parent recently also changes his perspective. You want to have a quality of life that's going to last beyond the age of 36 because you still got a good, you know, 50 years, if not more, to go in life. And uh, you want to be able to play with your kids and, and be active post-professional career. So, I hope he can come back, get healthy. You don't want to see him struggle through the rest of the calendar year and have to limp out. But let's be honest, how many players get to go out on their own terms? Very, very very few in this sport. Yeah, even did Roger Federer really go out on his own terms, if we think about it? I mean, the send-off at Laver Cup was phenomenal, but his last Grand Slam event was at Wimbledon where his knee injury basically flared up and he lost to Hubert Hurkacz. So it's very, very hard to, to exit this sport on top. I know Nadal, his competitive spirit, I mean, he's going to fight so hard to get back on the court. It's probably timing-wise to get a break leading into the clay court season, best-case scenario, where his body handles the clay way better. So we'll see what happens. Um, Just other results on the ATP side. Andy Murray, I mean, competing so hard and making the third round. I I think that was probably the feel-good story of the tournament, even if he'd only played three matches. If there was like another trophy to give out, not like the runners, I mean, we got the runners up trophy, but if there was like a a third place, kind of like the, what what is it? The Fed Cup Heart Award is what they used to call it, you know, right? Like (laughs) something like that. My goodness, Andy Murray would win that one uh, hands down. I mean, his match against Berrettini to, to think like he had let it slip away and then able to continue to persevere and and win it in that fifth set tiebreak. And then against Kokonakis to lose the first set first two sets and battle back the way he did. Um, and then unfortunately, Roberto Bautista, Agu, the last person you want to see if you've been through a couple of grueling five set matches like that. Um, look, his last slam win was nearly seven years ago, or it will be at Wimbledon this year. His last slam semifinal was six years ago at the French open. 
Um, he, he's now played 10 slams, 10 majors since his hip surgery, not able to move past the third round. Um, but there he is out there battling and just showing what a great champion on the inside he is. And though I don't think we'll necessarily ever see him in the second round of a major again, um, kudos to him for, for what he's doing for, for the love of the sport. He's just such a warrior. There's so much that young players can, can take from him. And, um, and I loved watching every minute of every match of his this year at the Aussie open. Yeah, it was uh incredible theater. I mean, one of the matches finishing past 4 a.m. Melbourne time, which is insane. Andy is still ranked 64th. I'd love for him to get back, you know, inside top 40 even. Um, I, I think he still can play top 30, sometimes top 20 tennis. We see glimpses of it. I feel like his movement is the best I've seen it. Maybe post sort of second hip surgery, he is moving really well around the court. I mean, we see him maybe sort of limping a bit like an old man after the points, but when when it is game on, um, we have seen some of that vintage Murray movement. I think best of three sets, he could still, you know, maybe in a grass court warm-up tournament or something, sure. still go for a run. I just think best of five, we saw what those two rounds took out of him. I, I don't think it's sustainable over a, a long haul, unfortunately. No, that's true. Um, if we just move on to what we're going to see this week as we wrap up, uh, Bianca Andrescu, we know we, she lost in the second round of the Australian Open. Hungry to get back on the tennis court, which I love. And she's playing actually the WTA International Tournament at the Thailand Open. Small event where Bianca is actually the number one seed. And I, I mean, I love the fact that she's healthy and just wants to get back on court and play. Yeah, and not just is she the number one seed, but to me, she's definitely, in my mind, the uh, the big favorite. When you look at the draw there, the number two seed is Yulia Putin-Seva. Um, beyond that, it is a little bit sparse. So I think this is a great opportunity for her. I think she should play as many tournaments as both body and mind uh, will sort of allow her to do for the next few months. So I think it's great that she's back out there to try and get that ranking. I mean, the goal has got to be to get a seed at Roland Garros, I would imagine, for her right now. Yeah, definitely. And look, she's going to have plenty of time to to manage that given that she missed all this portion of the season up to April, May uh, from last year. Cadence Brace, uh, Canadian, was also in the field and qualifying. She's ranked 434th. She lost uh, to the second seed. And... That was in, uh, yeah, the Columbia tournament. And, oh, sorry, um, in, in yep. Columbia. And that's where uh, Carol Zhao is as there well. And I believe she's in the main draw as Correct. the seventh seed. This is the Copa Oster tournament in Columbia. So we do have a, a couple Canadians in action in smaller tournaments. It'll be some time off for Dennis, Felix, Layla before they get back on the court. And in the men's side this week is Davis Cup qualifiers. Uh, Canada having already advanced to the finals by virtue of their big win in 2022, obviously not in competition. Uh, we'll see them later in the year for that. Yeah, and we will see you guys next week for another episode. Guys, thanks so much for listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.